and welcome to the ninth episode of our podcast series, High Reliability Myth or Possibility. We're glad you're joining us again to examine the claim that many organizations make when they say they're highly reliable, but without any evidence to support their claim, anyone can claim to be highly reliable. Today, we're going to talk about biases. Can an organization not address biases and be considered a highly reliable organization? Are biases a risk in the organization? We address these questions and more on today's episode. Today, I'm pleased to have Paula Sage with us again, one of the founding partners and analysts at SGCS. Paul, thank you for joining us again. I find this particular topic fascinating because I've not yet found an organization that evaluates biases as a risk in their organization. Many I've talked with struggle with how to address it. Even if they talk about biases, they don't really know how to delve into it and how to address it. So I want to break this down today. But first, I want to ask you a question. Can an organization be highly reliable if they do not address biases as a risk in their organization? I absolutely believe they cannot be reliable even a little bit, not even highly reliable if they don't address bias as a risk. And one of the interesting things about bias, if you study it, is bias compels behavior of certain types. It's an expectation. People have this term associated with things that are bad, and there are bad biases, but if you walk into a room and flip a light switch and the light comes on, you're biased that the light's going to come on. Bias is a, is a prepared expectation associated with past experience. The problem is, is if you don't address these biases, you are not really finding out what's compelling behavior. And I'll give you a little clip of that, Tammy, is one of the things we run into a lot, particularly when we get to the behavioral part of collaborative high reliability, is people saying, I don't condone this person's behavior. They knew there was a rule. They knew they didn't follow the rule. They know the consequences. Why do I have to try and understand why they did it? And I would tell you that if you don't want to understand why people are behaving in a certain way, then you have no hope of being highly reliable because you can't build a system that's resilient around their predicted behavior unless you understand why they're behaving and performing in a certain way. And so bias is a key thing to address in this. As a matter of fact, one of the clients we work with, MGB, calls it equity-informed collaborative high reliability in that they recognize they have severe risks associated with inequitable healthcare, and they run counterfactuals all the time when we run cases, which is plug in the patient or the situation in a different manner, make it a different outcome. Uh, make it a different color of patient, make it a different age, make it an insured patient rather than an uninsured or a houseless patient. And when you start doing things like that, you start seeing the hidden biases inside an organization much, much clearer. Thank you for that answer. When I was doing my research on this and from previous conversations, I wanted to talk about or address biases in three different areas. The first one I want to talk about is uh, people. We all innately have biases. The risk for that really creates 
it creates risk. So I want to talk about people first. If you can talk about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess the people bias is probably one of the things that's most difficult in some ways to overcome because for some of us, it's pre-programmed even as we're children. Um, I grew up in a big Italian family and um, my family, when our family gatherings, I'm used to everybody being loud and hugging each other and all sorts of stuff. And so I have this inherent bias that that's the way Italians work when they get together as groups. In other words, I've got this cultural affect that like, this is what I expect when I walk into it. But you know, that isn't the way some other people, my wife is Asian and Hawaiian and they don't get together like that, right? They're, they're not, they don't interact the same way. Um, and so what's really interesting is I think you can really understand the people bias better if you kind of put this thought forward, which is having biases themselves isn't bad. What's bad is if you don't examine the biases you have, if you don't see them and, and, and are able to examine them in a way that says, is this helpful or unhelpful to have this particular bias? And that's probably the danger and the risk is when we have them, but we think we don't, or we are unwilling to examine what the biases are, particularly in regards to people. Um, we can have a fearful experience with someone as a child or a teenager, or a young person, and, and we would imprint that and have that bias associated with that type of person through the rest of our lives. I've had patients, you know, we all have if in the work we do, it's me as a flight paramedic and a firefighter paramedic, we had our frequent flyers. And it's very hard to overcome the biases associated with going on those types of calls as you see the same type of patient over and over again, and they don't seem to be able to take care of themselves or take responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And those sorts of things can build uh, into a harmful risk if you're not willing to look at it and treat everyone exactly the same way. And so um, remember that biases make our life easier in most ways because it doesn't require, if I've got a bias, there's no critical thinking involved. I just walk up and I, and I run my bias. I run this paradigm that I've got. And so life's easier with biases in a lot of ways. And it's, it's harder to critically think your way through these processes and think about it in particularly as it relates to people, because we don't like the label that comes along with it. And, and that's a very difficult thing to try and overcome. I think the first thing is to recognize that we have these. Yes. As people, we all have them. And like you said, I think there's good and then there's not so good. And first we have to recognize it. Can you give me an example? You mentioned about kind of a natural bias and how it can be good and we can walk into a situation. Do you have any examples you can give us? Well, I would say just kind of everything on your day-to-day -day living that you have expectations and don't have to critically think through. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman calls it your system one versus system two thinking. And, you know, your system one thinking is that automatic stuff that just happens. You just are doing it. But when you walk into the kitchen and you know where everything is and you happen to know where the pots and pans are and how to cook this particular recipe and all those things, that may not sound like a bias, but a pattern is a pattern and it's the same sort of thing. And when you realize that the type of biases we have around the way we see people and the way we interpret people's behavior is really no different than that type of pattern making of how we cook dinner or how we clean something or when we walk out in the direction we walk with the mower to mow the lawn or any of these other things. These are all patterns because we are pattern making animals. We, we like patterns because it's much easier to function 
when I don't have to critically think through every single step. So if you can actually imagine that the way that you perceive a human for the first time you see them is you are trying to build some sort of pattern of behavior to help you understand on how to respond to this person. And it's no different than the first time you walk into any situation that doesn't involve a human, a system. You walk in, you're trying to understand the system. And then once you have the patterns down, you and this is why we have so many people who don't follow some specific safety rules is because they've done things over and over and their risk intelligence tells them this is the right thing to do. Um, I'm trading accuracy for speed and I can. I'm not, I have a bias that this is not dangerous until it is. And those are the, like talking on a cell phone when you're driving and, and thinking you're perfectly safe is a bias because it's a pattern you developed over time and you've convinced yourself that it's not risky. I mean, being caught might be risky, but the actual act of talking you don't believe is in many cases. So those are the sorts of things if you can think about and translate that to the first time you see someone of color or you see someone who's different than you or an uninsured houseless person. And the thoughts that run through your head are a pattern you've developed to help you cope or associate with a certain particular situation. And I'm not a psychologist, you could probably explain it much deeper, but we've seen this over and over and over again in cases that we analyze. Do you think that we can be around, you gave an example a while ago and it made me realize I've my background, as I've talked about, is in nursing, and I've worked in emergency departments, that we can take others' biases and transfer that to us, to where we then have that biases. Oh, I think that's very common, um, in particular when there's a power gradient between you and the other person. So we see it all the time. And I know for a fact, if I'm honest with myself, my parents transferred some of their biases to me as a young child, right? I mean, no doubt I had biases associated with the way my parents acted, what they said, what they did, and I respected them. And it wasn't until I was older that I started examining those, right? And go, why am I thinking that? What, what's going on here? Is that really true? And, or at work, you could be, Tammy, as a nurse, you could be a new nurse and be associated with a field training person or a training nurse. And that training nurse can transfer their biases associated with the system they're working in or the type of people that they're carrying over to you, particularly, again, if there's a power gradient, if you're wanting to get along and you want to belong to the group, it's a coping mechanism. Biases are a coping mechanism. So people can have biases. What about systems? I think some people, some organizations realize that people have biases, but they don't think about system. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we've seen with the system issues when we deconstruct these risk events is that People have biases that systems, people are going to work within the systems the way that the system was designed. And, and that's why collaborative high reliability asks those two questions. Is it effective if used as designed, the system? And if the answer is yes, you have to ask, well, then is it resilient to things people will do, basically? Errors, bad choices, don't follow the rules, those sorts of things. And part of the reasoning behind that is we have this belief that we have ideal humans around us. So I like to tell people that I talk to that there's an ideal human and there's a real human and the ideal human doesn't exist, but we wrote our policies, procedures, and built our systems for the ideal human, the one that's going to follow every step in the process and do it exactly the way it's supposed to be. But we have real humans and we've given them 17 other things to do simultaneously. 
So this human has to choose, the real human has to choose what to do inside the system. And so I become biased as to how resilient or how effective that particular system is based on the feedback. Remember, we're looking for patterns. And if the feedback from the system is it's working, nothing's broken, I can skip step three and four doing this, and there's no risk associated with that, it then looks horrible at the end if something bad happens. We have this outcome bias. Well, if you'd only done steps two and three, this wouldn't have happened. Well, that may be obvious, but what we want to know is what compelled you to not follow those steps? What else was going on? And this is the dichotomy we run into. We have staff who don't want to know that information. They're just not interested. They have this systemic bias that the system is fine the way it was built, and they're not really interested in understanding how the people you hire are going to operate inside of it. That is a, that's an issue, and it's a systemic one. And that's a risk. You said two words there together, risk and biases. And I'm not sure, in your experience with the organizations you've worked with, how many of them, once you just started with them, consider bias as a risk for the organization? Oh, I would say that there's the majority see it pretty quickly that biases are a risk. And some of them see it very quickly and, and as in MGB, pivot very rapidly to, oh my God, we've got a pretty big problem. And not just biases associated with equity, but all sorts of biases. There are other organizations that culturally, and, and this can be actually geographic or demographically based that are in certain parts of the country who don't see it as, as easily. It's, it's a little harder journey to get them to understand this. Organizations that are rule-based, not risk-based, that have attorneys running their HR department, those sorts of things, they have a very hard time seeing how, in, in my experience, a lot of them have a very hard time seeing how biases work into compelling human behavior and how they can change that if they're willing to look at the system and how we have biases around how the system works. Organizations that are risk-based, not rule-based, think differently. And we're trying to get people to think risk-based, not rule-based. Regulators are rule-based. They just come in and they've got their rules and they're just going to tell you, if, if you don't follow standard operating guideline 6.9.2 subsection E, there's a problem, right? And that's not risk-based. So there are, I, I'm going to say the majority see it pretty quickly and understand that biases of different types are a risk. The hard part for them is how do I tease those out? And that's the counterfactual process that we help them with. Which was my next question. To delve into this is just got to be huge for especially a large organization to address this. A, to realize that it's a risk and then to try to mitigate the risk within the organization. I mean, I'm sure that you've seen some organizations deal with it differently. Do you have any suggestions yeah. on that? Yeah, I would say I don't know that they deal with it much differently as much as um, there's different expectations. For me, I, I had a mentor once tell me, and I might have mentioned this in the previous one, and, and he said, you know, you can't be curious and angry at the same time. He goes, I've never seen a curiously angry. And I always find myself that if I'm getting a little bit upset about something, particularly like a bias or somebody's telling me something I don't like to hear, I have to flip that switch mentally and start being curious. And maybe there's nothing there. Maybe the person telling me this is wrong, and, and that's happened plenty of times. But I've also learned a lot by doing that, by just being curious about, well, why does this person actually see it that way? And that's part of overcoming these biases is like teaching people, you know, it's not just your perspective. If you're all looking at something, you're all seeing it slightly differently. Yet when I look at a case, 
I think everybody in the room sees it the same way I do. And one of the hard things we have to do is pull people away from that and go, if there's 20 people in the room, they're seeing this case 20 different ways. Once we start doing it, it starts clicking, but it takes a lot of practice. I think one thing that is very important is that we have to listen. We don't listen with the intent of replying, but we listen to hear the other person. So you talked about being in the room and what's the other people in the room? The other people are the note takers and the ones that are curious and, and ask questions and give me some examples. How would we, how do we overcome this? You know, they're actually interested in trying to overcome it. And then over time, usually get most of the people recognizing that there's an issue. You only have to run two or three cases using counterfactuals and the eye rollers start to perk up. There's like, wait a minute, there might be something here. And the beauty is real simple cases. You know, the lifeguard who goes in to save someone outside of their zone and they save the woman and the lifeguard was fired. This is a Florida case for going outside their zone to save someone. And because they left their safety zone, right? And everybody's so upset. They're like, how could they do that? He saved the woman. And I said, okay. So then we take half the group and we're like, okay, let's do it differently. He goes in to save the woman. He drowns, the woman drowns, and another woman drowns in his zone because he wasn't there to save her. What does that look like? And all of a sudden, everybody's like, well, that's not fair. You just changed the outcome. And this is the thing is we are so outcome-based. And it's like the risk was the same before he, the, before this lifeguard made the choice. The risk was no different. The risk was exactly the same. He didn't know what the outcome is. You don't know what the outcome is. So running these cases without the outcomes or by changing the outcomes, people start to see how they're biased associated with what they think about a certain outcome or a certain thing or a certain person. And, and it's an enlightening experience. On that topic of outcome bias, I always find this one intriguing. Does our outcome bias increase with the more times that we see a positive outcome? Yes, because that's called risk intelligence when it gets to that point. So uh, I build my risk intelligence. Remember, risk intelligence is experiential. So I always tell people, if you had two kids, you treat the second one completely different than the first because your risk intelligence about what's safe and what's not safe with the first kid changes your outlook. So as the outcome changes, or if the outcome remains the same, either one of those can, if the outcome changes every time, your risk intelligence is very nuanced. But if you do one thing every single time and the outcome stays the same, you build this bias that this is perfectly safe. I can do this. It's not a problem until it, it is. And then that breaks, all of a sudden that's like, wait a minute, that's, that's not what my bias was. But you have to push that in front of people and have them actually experience it in order for it to work well. Can we have an outcome bias that's overreact and underreact? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It goes the entire spectrum, right? You know, when people are looking at clinical cases, like root cause analyses, rather than a collaborative risk review, it's everyone's looking at this, you know, five whys and getting to the end point. And it's all about, well, what, how do you avoid this outcome? When you do it in the right way, the outcome doesn't matter at all. It's like, for instance, I like to tell people real briefly, if you run a stop sign and run over a baby in a baby carriage, I'm not there to investigate why did the baby got run, get run over. That's the outcome. The risk was the same whether you hit anybody or not. I'm there to analyze what contributed to you running the stop sign. 
And this changes people's profile because all of a sudden they're out of the legal system, which is all outcome-based. You and I drive drunk tonight, you, you same blood alcohol, you cross the center line and hit somebody, I go into a ditch and hurt no one. We're gonna be treated completely differently even though we were exact, made the exact same choice. People get that stuck in their head and it keeps them from seeing bias because they just think of it as a legal process that you're going through. And legal systems are rule-based, not risk-based. So it's, it's a very interesting process to go through, but you gotta take people through it. And both of those examples had to do with the outcome. It They're didn't have to do with the blood, the blood alcohol, it was the outcome. Yeah, and that's what most people are looking at, the outcome. That's why cases get examined. And they're called SRE, significant reportable events. I wouldn't have to report it if it wasn't an event. And that's what we're trying to say is you just don't, you got to run it without the event and see what would happen. And it looks a lot different when you do that sometimes. It looks very different. So I think those are some great examples of biases that we have within systems. And we've talked about people. Um, the third one that I wanted to talk about, which I'm not sure if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have even recognized, but tools. What about can tools be biased? You mean, can you have a bias on how a particular tool is or isn't going to work or function? Is that what you mean? Yes. And one more, I'm going to add to it. Can the tool be biased by the person that developed it? Well, there's it, there's clear evidence that tools are ha, have inherent biases in them based. I mean, all we have to do is look at the research on the recent AI stuff, right? Where it's like the person who developed the artificial intelligence and the scanning thing, it's you know, it's based off large scale data. You know, it's all big data, but it's all what gets scraped. So if it scrapes the wrong data, it comes to the wrong conclusions. All you have to do is look at some of the healthcare EHRs like Epic to understand that the different manifestations of those EHRs are often based on the biases that people have that are running that particular system and what a risk is. Not necessarily the program itself as it's built by the, by the manufacturer, but the way that they're instituted in hospitals is I can make adjustments, local adjustments to that program. Those, we, we see biases all the time associated with stuff that we think is going to manage risk. For instance, the flag system inside most of these EHRs that raise flags, and I've got to click through all these flags every single time, right? They're, they're warnings. We have a systemic bias that that particular equipment or machine is going to help us be safer when in actuality it doesn't because there's only two things that compel me to change my behavior. I have to actually see and understand the risk of the behavior. That's rare or there's a cop in my rearview mirror, someone standing over my shoulder making me do it. Well, the cop isn't there in healthcare when I'm going through Epic, and if I don't see the risk of clicking through all those flags, then I'm gonna click through the flags. And, and that's where we start seeing this bias. As somebody who built the machine believes it's managing risk. By the way, if it's effective if you use it the way it was designed, but we're not using it the way it was designed, right? So it's non-resilient. We don't like to ask those questions because it challenges sometimes the decisions we've already made and the money we've already spent. So we as individuals then can have a bias in how we utilize the tool. So separate from the tool itself, 
we can have a bias in how we use that tool. Yeah, you can even look at like healthcare providers or others who believe that a tool is only useful for say one or two things. I grew up in an environment in the fire department where we use we use the tools we had for anything. I mean, there's a lot of times we use tools. I remember once we all carried thermal imaging cameras and you're supposed to use that in the dark and smoky environments and that sort of thing. And I was on a high rise fire and on a ladder and I had no ax with me and I used the thermal imaging camera to break the window and it broke the camera. And I remember trying to explain to someone that, you know, I have no particular bias on how this tool works. I, in other words, for me, it's just a hammer. Tomorrow it might be a camera. And I guess my point is, is that it's all about like how adaptable you think you can be around the tools that you have or how strict you are around those particular tools. And also a part of it sometimes is institutional. It's like what freedom do they give you to experiment with the tools you have to see what might work better? Particularly even electronic healthcare reporting or Pixis machines or a lot of those things. A lot of the systems that are put in place don't work really well throughout the hospital in every single unit. So you've got to have, we have this bias that if I put it in place in the NICU, it's going to work in the ED, not the case. So what we have to do is think, how do we have these biases that created a system that may not work in every aspect? We can't operationalize it the same way in every part of a hospital or every part of an airline. Would it be a true statement, Paul, if I said there are numerous types of biases? You know, some people think yeah. that there's just very few biases, but is it a true statement that there are, I mean, maybe a hundred biases or more? Oh, there's thousands of them. The ones we focus on are hindsight bias and outcome bias and manager's bias and some of these ones that we're real familiar with and we see all the time. And there's some mentioned in our courses, but you could go online and you could be a bias expert of which I'm not. And there's thousands of them. There's literally thousands of different kinds of biases. Um, it's a science in and of itself. Again, the issue is how do we see and recognize those and not get rid of them? Your job isn't to eliminate the biases. Your job is to be able to effectively see them and manage them. Okay, because remember, some of them are helpful. Some of the biases that you have, the patterns you've developed are helpful. You don't have to critically think through every single thing you're doing because you have this pattern developed and that's a helpful pattern. There's no reason to get rid of it, but it's also helpful to understand like, is that the right pattern or should I adjust step seven, right? And we don't have the time a lot of times to look into things like that. Well, and that brings me to a comment I wanted to make is, one thing that we can all do is to be aware of our own biases. Like you said, there's good and there's ones that we really need to delve in and look at. And we need to be aware of those. And how we want to correlate this is to keep in mind that we're looking to proactively manage risk. And biases can be a risk to any organization or even us personally. It can be a yeah. risk. So two, two final points then on that. First of all, biases can also help us manage risk effectively. In other words, the bias can be effective in managing risk. It allows me to make a quick system one decision when I don't have time to do system two thinking. I'm walking down the street. I've got this weird feeling about somebody that's following me. I've got a bias associated with that. That, that might be safe. That might be safety. And so we have to recognize that biases can be as helpful as they can be harmful. 
that's kind of lesson number one. Biases are in and of themselves not a bad thing. They can be both helpful because they eliminate this, the, the step two thinking, the, the system two thinking sometimes. They can be hurtful when used in the wrong way. So there's that piece. And then the last one really is when you start examining these or you start thinking about them, it's work and it makes you uncomfortable. And no one likes to be uncomfortable. None of us like to be uncomfortable. None of us like to look in and go, I don't like what I just saw about myself. And that makes it a difficult process sometimes to go through. So if we recognize curiosity, you're going to be somewhat uncomfortable. And don't forget that biases are as helpful as they are hurtful in the right context. I think you'll start approaching it in a different way. I think that's a great way to end the episode with that is for us to be aware and the comments that you made and not necessarily think of it as a negative, like you said, but something to be aware of and for us to help with risk. I think it's very, very important. Well, thank you, Paul, for today. I appreciate it. Um, I'm glad we focused on this because to look at those three topics with people, system, and tools, I think can be very eye-opening for many people listening to our podcast series. So thank you again, Paul. I appreciate your time, and I am sure we'll be talking again very soon. Well, thank you for inviting me, Tammy. And I know we said some stuff today that's going to make people think. But if if we can do that, then we've helped them start to examine their own biases. That's exactly right. Good point. All right. Thank you.